Hey everyone, welcome back to the latest episode of Davos Confidential. I'm Ryan Heath, the author of the Brussels Playbook column, and joining me is Politico Europe's executive editor, Matthew Kaminsky. Hi, Matt. Good to see you, Ryan. And Florian Ader, the author of our German language morning column, Morgan Europa. Hey, Florian. Hey, hello. Good to be here again. So we're recording a special episode around Europe. It's Europe Day on Wednesday at the WEF. Uh, there's been a flood of European leaders heading into Davos. I think 18 out of the 28 are actually on the ground today. And the big speeches Wednesday here are from Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, and Paolo Gentiloni from Italy. Matt, over to you. Europe says it's back and it's doing well. Do we care and should we believe them? Well, it's remarkable to see Europe have such a swagger uh, here. And this hasn't uh, been the case for, I would say, a at least since the late 90s when, you know, with enlargement in the Euro, Europe was creating something new and then became this long period of, of doldrums. And, and I think legitimately they can say they got a couple, they got a couple superstars uh, in Emmanuel Macron and Sebastian Kurz who couldn't come here. Angela Merkel, you know, she has come back from the political dead or seemingly from the political dead over the weekend, is coming here sort of newly confident. So Europe is able to project an image that it itself probably is somewhat uh, surprised uh, 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 to be able to do. And later on in the podcast, we're going to hear from Xavier Battelle, the Prime Minister of Luxembourg, and Alexander de Croix, the Deputy Prime Minister of Belgium. And I think they're singing that hymn as well. Florian, uh, bring us a German perspective here. Is Angela Merkel weakened and staggering, or is she going to come in and really make something work for the world with Macron? I would expect her uh, to talk about multilateralism tomorrow, um, not only because that's been the, the big theme of the German presidency of the G20, but also um, because we've heard last year from the Chinese president this year in a slightly different tone from the Indian prime minister, that there's so many contenders for, you know, to be the, the biggest the driving force for multilateralism and openness and trade in this world, that I think the Europeans might want to use the opportunity tomorrow to say that, you know, for the past decades, that has been their strong point uh, and that hasn't changed. So I would, I would expect uh, a message like that from, from all European leaders uh, and also from Angela Merkel. At home, um, there's a good chance that uh, she is going to, that she will form yet another government in a few weeks. Uh, so uh, the situation has changed quite considerably um, when you compare it to a few, a few weeks ago. Now, a couple of gut reactions before we hear from those European leaders. Narendra Modi, India's leader, addressed the conference on Tuesday morning. Do we remember? Is there any buzz around the conference? I'm not hearing a lot. It was a bit of a snooze fest as far as I'm concerned. No, he failed to sort of uh, have that one takeaway line that you would remember. I think we all know there's a lot of India here. India's trying to present itself as, look, we are the engine of global growth. We are the future for the world. But that's not really sinking in because there's too many other more interesting stories. And Modi, who had a lot of star power coming in, uh, I, I would say didn't use it uh, uh, to his advantage here. Lauren? I would totally agree. And the argument, you know, we're, we're a big economy, we're a growing economy. Um, that is one argument. The other one, we're yeah, a well, democracy tell us here. We don't know. We know India is big and they grow. Uh, well, no, the other one is we're the democracy here, so uh, why don't you come to us rather than a few uh, uh, thousand miles further east? Um, but that's all known indeed. Great. Well, let's swing it back to Europe. Thanks, Florian. Thanks, Matt, for joining us. Thanks. Thank you.
We spoke to Alexander de Croo, one of the deputy prime ministers of Belgium, just after he came off a Politico panel in Davos around post-rage and post-establishment politics. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Now, you've just come off a panel with Politico's uh, global editor-in-chief, John Harris, and you were looking at post-establishment, post-rage politics. Um, what was your takeaway from that panel, where we are in the world today? I think, first of all, that uh, the big part of the populism we see throughout the world is not so much driven by migration or Islamophobia, but more with the technological changes that are happening. And people who have a feeling that uh, progress is actually not going to be to their benefit. And, and I think that throughout Europe, you can see that a lot of people have lost the belief in progress and basically say, for example, in the US, also in Britain and in some other countries, if this is what you think progress should be, maybe I don't want progress and maybe you'll just shield me off from that uh, future that you explained to me and I might just be happy with some nostalgic feelings of how the world used to be. That's actually an interesting thought, the idea that, okay, we've got Facebook and everything else now, but Facebook isn't necessarily progress in the way that putting men on the moon was progress or, you know, radical new advances in transport and, and things well, like that. Well, I think that, that, that obviously uh, progress is there and, and it is actually very tangible in, in the world. I think what is happening today is that people see this rapid pace of, of change, this, this very complex world where a lot of people today faced to that are just craving for simplicity. And that is a good breeding ground for populism because populism basically brings a story where we say, you know, if, if you are going to be surrounded with sameness, things are going to be much, much simpler. And, and we represent what the people want. And if we are surrounded with our people, uh, things will be much easier. That is not how the world functions uh, today, uh, of course. And we should bring um, a, a, another story, not the utopia story of how technology is going to improve everything, but a story where we understand the fact that people are worried. We understand the, the fact that people say, I do not think that I am prepared for that world. And I think that is true. I think on average, the European citizen is not does not have the tools in his hands to live in that world and that we actually give them the tools to be uh, independent and stable on their two feet in the world. Is that a generational problem for you? So something that will, you know, you would have just to wait for uh, a generation or two and it would uh, just solve itself? I don't think so. I mean, I didn't go into politics to say, you know, we'll just wait and, and we'll see what uh, we'll see what happens. Um, on, on having the tools to, to live in that digital world and in that globalized world, too often we say, look, education is going to solve all that. Um, yes, but only for a part of the population. And the big mistake we make today is that the European, you could call it social contract, basically says, you go to school, you finish school, you work hard, we will protect you. I don't think that's enough today. I think it will be, yes, you go to school, you work, you will continue reschooling yourself in, in, in a sense of continuous education. And then, of course, we will be there to protect you and to provide you anything that you need when you uh, when you have and is this where your idea of the universal right to learn comes in that exactly. people have a security knowing the state will help them do that uh, transformation in their life well we, we we have in the past and and actually any industrial revolution has always had a an education component in the revolution we have in the past in the industrialization we have made education mandatory 
because we thought that it is important for everyone to go to school. I think that today in continuous education, we should do the same. Today, continuous education is something that people will say, oh, I know what it is, but is it a reality for the European public today? Not really. It is a reality for some people who actually already are highly educated. And so what we are advocating is what we call universal learning right, where we would basically say any citizen has a right to two years of education in the period of his, career, his or her career. Mm -hmm. Is it two years in, in one piece or split out over a longer uh, period? Now, the system that we have behind it is that it is a credit that you have and uh, the industry can basically buy those credits and use those credits with um, organizations that are providing uh, that, that service. So you are a bit doing what, what the emission trading scheme is today for, uh, for greenhouse gas. The big ad advantage of that is that the schooling that is being provided will be the ones that the industry is actually interested in. Um, it is not so useful to have thousands of people have continued education and flower arrangements, exactly. but it could help us yes. if a lot of people are doing an data analysis. So, so memo to Leuven University, your philosophy course will have to survive by other means, but it does sound like a, an exciting idea. Maybe on to EU topics. Um, Wednesday is uh, a big day for uh, European leaders to come here to Davos and, and speak to the audience. Uh, there's uh, Italy's Prime Minister Paul Gentiloni, there's uh, uh, President uh, Macron, and also Angela Merkel. Mm -hmm. Is that uh, what do you ex expect from tomorrow? Well, let's compare the mood we had one year ago related to Europe and where we are today. Uh, a lot of people basically said, you know, the European project is gone and everything will be washed away. We have seen that the European project has much more resilience than people uh, expected. And moments like the, like the Brexit and like the, uh, the, the Trump election have actually pushed uh, people to make that European project more clear and, and, and more appealing to, uh, to, to the general public. And what we see today is actually a rejuvenated um, project for Europe, which is not just to anything saying more Europe is needed, but really trying to concentrate Europe to the, uh, to the core. People thought that the Brexit negotiation would be a moment where Europe would show its unpreparedness and would show the fact that there was no cohesion whatsoever. Actually, it's quite the opposite. On the British side, it's not really clear what they want. And I think Barnier is doing an excellent job in, uh, in, in doing that negotiation. Mm -hmm. is, there a risk that in the, sorry, is there a risk that in the second phase of the negotiation that uh, what you just described will actually be the new reality? So will, will Europe be able to stick together even in the, in the second phase of the Brexit negotiations? I think so, and I, and I think that uh, Europe has shown that we are mastering the, uh, the, the process, but we are also touching on, on I think, two main differences. Um, first of all, for the UK, this is topic number one. I think for Europe today, this is topic number five or number six. So it is less important for us than it is for the, for the British. That is one uh, imbalance. Second element is that if you look at all the red lines that the United Kingdom have put forward, if we want to work something out along those red lines, basically the United Kingdom would have a relation which is less intense with the Union than, for example, Turkey has today. Um, I personally think that that is not sustainable. And I think at some point on the British side, they will understand that you cannot have all those red lines and then still say we will be the trading hub of this globalized world 
but have a very limited relation with the biggest trading bloc in the world, I think a reality check is going to happen in the next month. So you think Britain will reconsider those red lines? I um, Well, if you don't reconsider it, I think you will end up with something which is really, really hurting the British, uh, the British economy. I think it will hurt the British economy. And from a Belgian point of view, um, look, even if we get a good deal, we are a small open economy. We always win with more trade. This is bringing friction to trade. So it's not good for Belgian economy. It's not good, uh, good for the Netherlands either. But what you see is that the general mindset is, okay, let's go ahead and we'll just uh, make the best of it. Now, maybe one final question connecting Belgium to the global scene. Uh, the WEF loves to have its official topics, and this year it's about how to change our fractured world. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me that Belgium is pretty much the, the global hub of consensus and figuring <laughs> out ways to create consensus. Or compromise, um, at least. Or yeah, compromise, that's yeah. That's true. Is, is there anything you think Belgium can say about how we create that new compromise, that new compact, that new consensus that gets us through this state of fracture that we're in right now? I believe that what, what Europe needs in, in, in the world today is, is some principled leadership. And, and to be quite clear on, on what are the values that we stand for and also act on them. Uh, foreign policy is not just having an opinion. Foreign policy is doing things. And in my domain, we've done that a few times. When there was a Trump decision on the Mexico City policy, we launched She Decides, not just to protest against the decision to not finance uh, family planning, but just to find new means of, of financing. On the Belgian side, we've done exactly the same when the United States decided to cut the financing of UNRWA, who is basically humanitarian help to Palestinians in, in refugee camps. We said, okay, we are going to increase our, uh, our disbursements. Um, I think that kind of leadership, where sometimes we say no, and when something good happens, we say, okay, we're going to push for, uh, for this. This is a role that European Union can play. Now, will we be perfect in it all the time? No because foreign policy is kind of the, 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 the side of the European building which is still in, under construction. But have we seen a tremendous positive impact on the way we manage foreign policy on the European level? Yes, I would say so. And I would just say this is uh, just getting started and, and you can expect much more in that dimension. Well, Alexander de Croix, thank you very much for joining us on Davos Confidential. My pleasure. I spoke to Luxembourg Prime Minister Xavier Battel as he was about to embark on his Davos odyssey. Tell us, Mr Battel, you're about to head into all of your meetings. What's bringing you to Davos? What's your main goal this year? I arrived two days ago with the President of Switzerland. He's also Minister of Culture. And we had um, a discussion about the culture of construction, about how... Uh, um, the way you construct cities mm -hmm. and houses uh, is impacting the society. Baukultur. Yeah, Baukultur. Exactly, Baukultur. You speak German too. <laughs> and uh, so we had the discussions about that. And uh, now we start the economic and political meetings for the next uh, three uh, three days. For me, it's uh, the fact to um, be able to, to represent my country, uh, but to also to have contacts with the company already present in Luxembourg mm -hmm. and also having meetings with... Uh, companies who are interested in Luxembourg mm -hmm. and uh, and to have an exchange and if I'm very honest with you I have two meetings a year where I think it's uh, really important to be present one is in Davos where I'm able to see all the economic um, 
persons mm -hmm. I really need to see without traveling during six months to be able to have all these meetings. So it's, it's almost to, carbon negative. You get so much done in one space, don't you? Yeah, but it's uh, it's like uh, speed dating with uh, all the persons you, mm -hmm. you need to talk. And it's the General Assembly of the UN in New York where I'm able to see all the head of state and of mm -hmm. governments all around the world where it would take two months to visit um, some of them. So these two um, meetings are for me important and my Minister of Finance is also present uh, in uh, Davos his first time. It's my fourth time uh, here and uh, it's an important meeting for me. And it's amazing this year. I think there's 17 EU leaders here out of the 28 and I've never seen that concentration before. And Jean-Claude Juncker from the Commission is coming as well. So there are um, two Luxembourgers. Two Luxembourgers. Who, who's the most important? Who's going to have the best contribution? It's a different contribution. He's now, he's Luxembourger, but defending European position. I'm a uh, Luxembourger defending Luxembourgish position and European positions. Mm -hmm. I can do both. He can't. Excellent. And will there be any mini summits, given there are so many of you from the EU Council who are here? We have some moments where we will be together. Excellent. And have you got one final message for the world about why they should be investing and interested in Luxembourg? I think uh, my uh, country is the proof that uh, you don't need to be a big country to be efficient and uh, that uh, size doesn't matter and uh, that uh, my country was always able to, to think about the next big thing of tomorrow. And my country was a poor country. We were a farmer country and uh, we decided to, be, uh, to, to produce steel, then we had banks, we had uh, media and communications, RTL now, which is one of the biggest media groups, with satellites, with SES. Uh, we have the funds, we are the second biggest funds industry. We start now initiative on space mining with a satellite um, also, but not the space mining satellite, mm -hmm. but the satellite also will be launched next week, and the space mining initiative where we have a lot of countries following Luxembourg. So uh, being... Uh, proud about our past, but uh, even uh, more excited to prepare the future. Thank you for joining us on Davos Confidential. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Davos Confidential. A big thanks to Andrew Gray and Michelle Stoddart for producing the podcast back in Brussels. If you'd like more information from Politico on everything that's going on up the mountain here, then sign up for our daily Davos Playbook email. Go to register dot politico dot eu forward slash Davos Playbook. Mm -hmm.